welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. The movement for International Women's Day and Women's History Month goes back to the early 20th century. Women's History Month in the United States traces its roots back to the first International Women's Day in 1911. That was women workers from factories, textile mills, garment industries, and homes march for equal rights and suffrage, the right to vote, for women across the U.S. Northeast. And on March 8, 1917, in the capital of the Russian Empire in Petrograd, women textile workers began a citywide demonstration in fervor favor of equality for women. This demonstration formed part of the February Revolution in Russia, which alongside the October Revolution of that same year made up the Russian Revolution. In the United States in February 1980, former President Jimmy Carter issued a presidential proclamation declaring the week of March 8, 1980 as National Women's History Week. By 1987, after being petitioned by the National Women's History Project, the U.S. Congress officially designated the month of March as Women's History Month. Today on Sojourner Truth, we mark International Women's Day, which was actually on March the 8th, and also Women's History Month 2021, with an in-depth discussion with two grassroots women's movement leaders, Marion Kramer of the National Welfare Rights Union and Selma James, founder of the International Wages for Housework campaign. And meanwhile, taking a look at what happened on March 8th around the world, women continue to campaign for justice and focus on how poverty remains a central concern for women and children. According to the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, they are 140 million poor or low wealth people in the United States. And it has been established that 70% of the poor in the U.S. are women and children. On March 8th, more than 20,000 women in India joined protests by farmers on the outskirts of New Delhi to mark International Women's Day. The farmers' strike has been massive and has been going on since August of 2020 and has been supported by labor and social justice movements around the world. But women are paying, uh, playing a major role in the strike. Indeed, 70% of the agricultural work done in India is done by women and children. Uh, the farmers collectively are demanding scrapping of a new agricultural law that open up the country's national farm sector to private buyers. On March 8th, women in India wore bright yellow scarves to represent the color of mustard fields while chanting slogans, holding marches, and making speeches against the laws. In November of 2020, when an estimated 250 million people went on a general strike in India, women played a leading role in what 
has now been considered to be the largest labor strike in history. On March 8th in neighboring Pakistan, women in cities across the country held rallies demanding equal rights for women. Let us go now to a clip of women talking about the farmer's strike in India. Our special focus on Women's Day today, more women protesters and women farmers arrived from Punjab and Haryana to mark International Women's Day at protest sites on the Delhi, Haryana and Punjab border. Pooja, a 45-year-old farmer from Haryana, made her way to the protest a day earlier on a tractor, also a poet by passion, recited few lines passionately about women. On Women's Day, women protesters, aware of the punch they bring to the farm law protest, now on their 102nd day. 33-year-old Suman Hudda from Hisar in Haryana is one such volunteer who has been at the protest site since day one. For months now, women have marked their presence at the farmers' protest, but on International Women's Day, the show of strength the Samyukt Kisan Morcha had said would be at least 15,000 women expected to gather. Farmers have been protesting at the Delhi borders for over 100 days now. Women have been an integral part of this movement. Some who have been here since day one say that they see no reason to return and that they will continue fighting for their rights and their demands. With camera, Sushil Rathi at Tikki Shanakshi Chakravarti TV. And in Mexico, in Mexico City, thousands of women march demanding an end to gender violence and femicide. A clash between police and protesters resulted in at least 81 people injured this according to the New York Times. In 2020, an average of 10 women were killed in Mexico every day and there were some 16,000 reported cases of rape. Meanwhile, back in the United States, President Joe Biden is set to sign a $1.9 trillion stimulus bill, which contains a one-year provision to expand the child tax credit and to make it refundable, meaning that for those who whose income are too low or who are on welfare and other benefits, they will become eligible for the child tax credit. This would allow for parents to receive up to $3,600 per child. And there are income cutoffs for receiving the payments, however, $75,000 for a single head of household, $150 for a married household. Now, parents with children uh, five and under would get a $300 payment per child, while those with children between six and 16 would get $250 a month. The Biden administration plans on beginning the child tax credit payments as early as July of this year. And meanwhile, in both the House and Senate, there is legislation uh, being discussed that would um, make the child tax credit permanent. Let us go now to our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, 
I'm Eileen Alfandiri. The House is set to give final approval to a massive $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief bill, sending it to President Biden for his signature. Highlights are $1,400 payments to individuals making up to $75,000 a year, extension of a $300 federal boost in unemployment benefits, $3,000 per child payments, for most families. There's also money to expand vaccinations, open schools, and bail out state and local governments, which have been hard hit by the pandemic. Christopher Martinez reports. Lawmakers have debated a coronavirus relief package for months, and now it's about to be passed and sent to the president. California Democrat Nancy Pelosi is the House Speaker. It is so exciting, as you know, because of what it does. Vaccines in the arms of the American people, money in their pockets, children safely in school, workers safely back to work. It's a remarkable, historic, transformative piece of legislation. An earlier version of the bill had already passed out of the House, and the Senate passed the bill Saturday with a few tweaks, sending it back to the House for a final vote. Both votes so far have drawn solid opposition from Republican lawmakers. That's despite recent polling. The Pew Research Center found strong public support for the bill, including support from a majority of moderate or low-income Republicans. I'm Christopher Martinez. The House approved Democratic legislation that seeks to begin to tilt the balance toward unions, which have lost major ground over the past several decades. The bill would block so-called right-to-work laws across the country and generally make it easier to organize a union. It would prohibit companies from permanently replacing striking workers. Ohio Democrat Tim Ryan noted that in the late 1970s, a CEO made about 35 times as much as a worker. That gap has ballooned to 300 to 400 times the average worker. And our friends on the other side running around with their hair on fire. Heaven forbid we pass something that's going to help the damn workers in the United States of America. Heaven forbid we tilt the balance that has been going in the wrong direction for 50 years. We talk about pensions, you complain. We talk about the minimum wage increase, you complain. We talk about giving them the right to organize, you complain. But if we were passing a tax cut here, you'd be all getting in line to vote yes for it. Now stop talking about Dr. Seuss and start working with us on behalf of the American workers. The legislation has been endorsed by President Biden, who recently gave his support to a union drive at an Amazon facility in Alabama. It faces heavy opposition from Republicans, making it unlikely it can pass the Senate. California Governor Gavin Newsom delivered an energetic State of the State address last night from an empty Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles. He discussed the death toll from the coronavirus pandemic while praising the state's efforts to combat the virus. California now ranks sixth in the world for vaccination distribution, ahead of countries, not states, ahead of countries like Russia, Germany, Israel, and France. You know, I, I know our progress hasn't always felt fast enough. And look, we've, we've made mistakes. I, I have made mistakes, but we own them. We learn from them. 
Newsom did not directly mention the recall effort against him. Organizers are expected to hand in petitions within days with nearly two million signatures to force a vote later this year to toss him from office. Students in the nation's second largest school district could return to class next month under a tentative deal between the Los Angeles Teachers Union and the school district. Like most of California's public school students, the district's more than 600,000 pupils have been learning online for almost a year because of the coronavirus pandemic. The city of Austin has become the first in Texas to say it will defy Republican Governor Greg Abbott's order lifting the state's mask mandate effective today. The health officer said Austin businesses must continue to require customers and workers to wear facial coverings. It wasn't immediately clear whether state officials will seek to overturn Austin's order. Abbott has also opened businesses to 100 percent capacity effective today. Arkansas's Republican governor has signed into law a measure banning nearly all abortions in the state. Opponents plan to challenge the sweeping measure before it takes effect later this year. Governor Asa Hutchinson had expressed reservations about the bill, which only allows abortion to save the life of the pregnant person. It has no exceptions for those impregnated in an act of rape or incest. Hutchinson said he was signing it because of overwhelming legislative support and his, quote, sincere and long-held pro-life convictions. The bans were pushed by Republicans who want to force the U.S. Supreme Court with its new conservative majority to take up and reverse the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision legalizing abortion. I'm Eileen Alfandiri for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And I'm delighted to be able to spend this hour uh, speaking with two grassroots women's movement leaders, Marion Kramer of the National Welfare Rights Union and Selma James, founder of the International Wages for Housework Campaign. The National Welfare Rights Organization led the way for access to welfare benefits for thousands of single mothers who were previously denied. In 1965, Johnny Tillman, out of Watts, uh, Southern California, Los Angeles, and president of the National Welfare Rights Union said, quote, if I were president, I'd start paying women a living wage for doing the work we are already doing, child raising and housekeeping, and the welfare crisis will be over, just like that. Housewives would be getting wages too, end of quote. The National Welfare Rights Organization led a women's movement that pressed for the right to welfare and for increased money for impoverished caregivers who were referred to as welfare mothers. They protested across the nation, including against the Vietnam War. The National Welfare Rights Organization was central in the organizing and success of the first Poor People's Campaign, which was called by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. months before his assassination. The National Welfare Rights Union experienced tremendous growth and popularity, more than doubling its membership from 10,000 in 1968 to 22,000 in 1969. Some say that the organization had as many as 100,000 members, though, by 1969. They believe that the state had a responsibility to provide for all people in need. In 1987, the National Welfare Rights Union, uh, founded or co-founded by our guest Marion Kramer, 
picked up the torch and continued the work of the National Welfare Rights Organization, pursuing social justice for all members of society, especially those who have been excluded, like women and mothers. Marion Kramer and other leading members of the National Welfare Rights Union continue to mobilize with poor and low-income people, um, public assistance recipients, our caregivers, and uh, those um, who are unemployed or at least not in the uh, waged uh, workforce. Meanwhile, on the other side of the Atlantic in history in the UK, aware of the importance of the welfare rights movement in the US, Selma James founded the Wages for Housework campaign in 1972. She was the first to put forward the demand for wages for housework at the third National Women's Liberation Conference in Manchester, England. The campaign defended child benefit payments going to mothers in the UK when it was under threat. For decades, the International Wages for Housework campaign and its network of autonomous organizations, including women of color, sex workers, women with disabilities, queer women, have organized with unwaged workers in the home uh, and uh, subsistence uh, farmers and workers on the land, as well as volunteers in the community. On March 8, 2000, at the request of Irish women who were organized a one-day strike of women in Ireland for International Women's Day, the Wages for Housework campaign called for a global women's strike, demanding payment for all caregiving work. Women from more than 60 countries around the world participated, and the Global Women's Strike and Women of Color Global Women's Strike was thus formed and continue to be active today. Payday, a network of men, also work as part of the Global Women's Strike, and today the Global Women's Strike has joined forces with the Green New Deal for Europe and has launched a global campaign for a care income now to be paid to those who are caring for people and or the environment. Now, um, Selma may not be aware of this, but we found a clip of her on our sister station, WBAI. I think it must be vintage um, 1970s uh, sometime. And here is what a much younger than Selma James had to say. There's an awful lot of us who are divided now by class and by race. Um, and so we think we have a very good chance of winning. But whether or not they're going to take it back will be entirely dependent on what other sections of the working class are able to do or prevent them, them doing. And that's always been the case. We don't say that we don't get a wage because men have got wages in factories. We don't say they've taken it from us. Uh, it's certainly true that they give a man what you call in England a wage packet or a check at the end of the week and then the woman goes to the supermarket and gives it right back to them. That's absolutely true today. There's no question that they are controlling the amount of money that we have at our disposal. But first of all, we want money of our own. We want to be independent human beings without having to go to work in a factory or an office as so many millions of us have been forced to do on an international level. And second of all, we feel that when they do try to take it back, that other sections of the working class will have to fight like hell to prevent it from being taken back. That's not new. That's not new. That's the way it goes. They're always going to try to take it back from us somehow. But I think before they try to take it back, they're going to try to divide us. They're going to try to say, we'll give some women money 
and will not give other women money. And on an international level, that's already happening because whereas in Eastern Europe, they're now paying women to have children, in countries like India, they're paying women not to have children. We are not demanding a productivity deal. We want the money because we need it. We want the money because we need to have control of our bodies, which means that we want the right to have abortion and we want the right to have children when we want it, which means we must have some money of our own. We want money so that we can refuse the jobs that they are offering us now at a much lower wage than men get. And uh, we know the kind of work that we have to do there. Either it's an extension of housework or it's heavy, manual, boring, disgusting labor where the clock doesn't move between one o'clock and um, two minutes past one, it takes about an hour. You know, on Monday morning, everybody in a factory, every woman in a factory says, I wish it was Friday. And somebody else says, you're wishing your life away. And the other person knows that that is absolutely true. You spend your life in a factory wishing your life away. You spend a li your life in the house wishing your life away. We don't want to wish our life away. We don't want to spend our life doing the work that has been set out for us. And the only way that we can refuse to do that work is by saying we can live without doing it. We are as much involved in wage labor in the sense that if we don't get money, either through a man or directly from a capitalist, we starve. We'd like to end that. We are not going to starve because we refuse to do their work. It's very hard to imagine what it's like to be free when you never have been. And I'm always afraid to imagine it because I'm always afraid that I'll be imposing the ideas, the mentality, the personality of an enslaved person on a future society. I, I, I don't know what it's going to be like when we don't have to work for wages and when, when we don't have to do very much work. I don't know. I don't know how we'll relate to each other. I don't know what it feels really to love without blackmail. I don't think any of us knows that. I'd love to find out, though. I know that every moment that I have that belongs to me now, that the most profitable way that I can spend it, the most rewarding way that I can spend it, is to organize myself and help to organize others to fight precisely the slavery that we all face. There you go. So that was a vintage uh, Selma James setting the stage here for our discussion. I'm really honored uh, to welcome Marion Kramer, who is um, the co-chair of the National Welfare Rights Union, an organization of, by, and for the poor in the United States and beyond. Marion Kramer, a long, long time um, women's rights campaigner, although she has not been recognized as such, but today we are lifting up up Marion Kramer uh, for all of the work and the leadership she has been giving for so many decades now. Marion Kramer is based out of Detroit, Michigan. Marion Kramer, welcome. Thank you. I'm, fine. I'm glad that we were able to get on the, on the call today. I'd also uh, like to welcome Selma James, activist, author, strategist, critical thinker, women's rights, and anti-racist campaigner. She's the author of Sex, Race, and Class, The Perspective of Winning, a selection of writings from 1952 to 2011, among other works, by the way, including Sex, Work, Race, and Class, and she co-wrote The Power of Women and Subversion of the Community with Maria Rosa Dalla Costa. And Selma has a new anthology that's uh, being launched in just a few months. Uh, Selma James, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be on in International Women's Week and with Marion Kramer. What a thrill. <laughs> 
Right. Absolutely. A very, very uh, exciting discussion, I I think. And just um, to be clear with all of our listeners is that uh, many people know that in addition to what I do in KPFK, I also do a lot of community work and activism. I am on the board of the National Welfare Rights Union. Uh, Marianne Kramer is the chair. And I'm also very active um, with the Global Women's Strike as a co-founder of Women of Color in the Global Women's Strike. So there, we got that disclaimer out of the way. But uh, Marion Kramer, uh, let us go to you because, um, you know, and and tell us a a bit of the history. I mean, a lot of people don't know or realize the connection between the welfare rights movement and the first Poor People's Campaign. Tell us uh, some about the early organizing of the National Welfare Rights Union with greats like Johnny Tillman um, out of California, Beulah Saunders out of New York, uh, Frankie Jeter and others. Marion Kramer. Well, thank you for giving me this opportunity uh, to be on the, on the uh, program uh, talking to women, not only just women, strong women. Not only that they are strong, they got they got they have more uh, energy and and more uh, education in their little finger than they than the people in Washington D.C. on both sides of of the uh, spectrum at in, at the at the White House or wherever they want to be. Uh, you know, I always say, people used to always say to us is, um, uh, why are you asking for more welfare? Because we want to fare well. You know, we want to be a part of a system that claims that we have the right to set up, uh, we have the right to uh, be able to participate in this system. Now, let me, uh, uh, briefly, one thing about the uh, the National Welfare Rights Organization, Johnny and all uh, and some other women, and Beulah, that was the first time I met Beulah and them at, in Syracuse, New York, when the Poor People's Campaign began to blossom and come about. That was years, years ago, although I'm still young. But uh, years ago. But it was such a pleasure to be there with those women. And out of that, that uh, particular uh, Poor People's Campaign and uh, uh, had a whole lot of low-income people that, took, uh, that ended up being a part of helping to, to set that up. But, you know, all you hear about, and welfare rights during that period of time. That's when it, uh, uh, you know, that was after it was had been called the National Welfare Rights Organization. When uh, not too long after that came into play, uh, those women began to educate what it means to be able to try to take care of your children, pay the rent, and everything else. And, you know, at that time, a lot of men, because I just came out of the Civil Rights Movement. At that time, who was running the organization, and uh, to be for real, were the men that had come to that, at that particular conference in Syracuse, New York. Uh, but the women began to move forward. 
as to what what they needed, what they needed as an organization, why this had to had to blossom. After that Syracuse, New York situation, three different uh, um, three different um, conference were called. And after that conference were called, it was called by the four people uh, by four people. Uh, that's when the national welfare rights really became an organization of four women. Although these women have been working in their community and stuff like that. They didn't have an, a, a big organization at that time. But they began to scare the hell out of, of, of this country and what they would do. It was nothing for Beulah and them to say, let's go down to, uh, you know, go take over, uh, what is it, where, all the, where they do all the money and stuff like that, um, yeah. go down in and, 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 and New York and, and take over, over, over the, the buildings down there that's supposed to be helping us also. Uh, that started beginning to, to take out any type of fear in those women at that time. Like I said, I was I had just le- left the civil rights movement, and I was I was offered uh, a position in at that time in um, in the community to uh, build up uh, to stop uh, urban renewal at that time. And one of the things that we built at the organization where I was working was a welfare rights organization. That was a WCO in, in here in Detroit. But Detroit was, was a little ahead in a sense because it was already some organization beginning to blossom at that time. And so, you know, we have to really pay tribute to those women and how they began to take over not only uh, go to uh, different capitals and, and take over of those houses and stuff like that, but fought dearly that, look, we, got to, we should have the right to be able to be a part of the decision-making here uh, for, the, for our benefit. They scared the hell out of some, a lot of those people, and they wasn't afraid to go to jail. We, you know, what what we build welfare rights for in the past around was uh, being able for people to be having some dignity, uh, to be uh, to live to fare well here in the United States, uh, and what have you. We can go for months and months on these uh, on the education of welfare rights, but years later we were under attack. Under that's right by the federal government, and and so let's go back to the poor people's campaign because I don't want to lose that in our government. Uh, those uh, Johnny Bueller, um, and I'm trying to think, you know, when you get old, Annie get Smart, old. and folks like that, mm-hmm. yeah, and that's who else on Annie Smart. Oh, so many women that I just had, I just uh. I, I, I enjoyed being around them. Um, we knew how to dance. We knew how to uh, uh, go uh, take over uh, uh, take over a lot of uh, government houses and stuff like that. And we knew 
that this was for the benefit of our children to have clothing when it's time for them to go back to school. But there was a change in the situation out of D.C. You know, uh, although all that fighting and stuff going on, you know, we did, they got, uh, those women were able throughout the country to get some clothing, better clothing for their kids to go to school and, and have better meals as well as be uh, able to be uh, have better clothes in doing so. When welfare rights did that, it was a wrinkling effect on, on all other type of programs that had existed out here that wasn't doing that type of job, but they were getting money based on poor people's backs. Yeah, welfare rights was becoming too damn powerful. Uh, Powerful, I'm telling you, uh, because D.C. rose up and sent the darn federal government over over to the office where it had began to where the office was in D.C. and closed it down. Right. And then and furthermore, um, you welfare mothers under attack with uh, Clinton's welfare reform and, and forced yeah, workfare. We're going to we're going to get back to that, Marion. What I'd like to do now is to just bring uh, Selma James into this discussion before we have to take a, a station break. And and Selma James, um, uh, just, you know, you're you're credited with with forming the term unwaged work. And I know that you were greatly inspired uh, by the welfare rights movement in the U.S. on the one hand, and then the movement for family allowance in the U.K. and in in Europe, and Eleanor Rathbone uh, being a woman who played a key role in the U.K. So just tell us about that. Tell us about the early days when you founded uh, the Wages for Housework campaign, when you first uh, put it forward, and the relationship that you see between these two critical movements, the welfare rights movement and the Wages for Housework campaign. Selma James. Well, uh, I was in the U.S. on a visit in 1969, and visiting Detroit, my friend told me there was a picket line around the welfare office, and wouldn't I like to come? And of course I did. And I met the welfare mothers and were astonished at their energy and determination and about their slogans, like, the moon doesn't wear clothes, but our kids do, because mm-hmm. they just had a moonshot, and they were, it was very expensive, but they wouldn't give uh, kids enough money so they could be properly dressed. And that stayed with me, and I understood that there was a women's movement in the U.S. that feminists did not acknowledge, and I was shocked by that. But I went back to England, and um, shortly after that, I put forward wages for housework. I wasn't exactly certain about all the questions, but the first thing is that women would not be poor. And it seems like producing all the people in the world, which we do, um, was not enough to save us from poverty, as a matter of fact, it seemed to confirm that we had other things to do besides get money, but it was money that we wanted. And just after I'd put that forward, when we were discussing it in Women's Liberation, uh, the government decided to give family allowance 
to the fathers rather than the mothers so that when the fathers were out on strike, they wouldn't get it. You see, that was a way of cutting it and cutting our throats and making us more dependent on men. And we organized the National Family Allowance Campaign, and after about a year, the government decided that it was a mistake, and we went back to family allowance not under threat. But during that time, we were discussing it with women. We were organizing for the family allowance. We learned about Eleanor Rathbone, who was a a rich woman. She had money. She was the daughter of ship owners in Liverpool. And the thing about that family was that in the 19th century, they had refused to carry slaves, which meant that their children had an education for the modern world, an anti-racist education. And she lived up to that reputation in many ways in relation to the independence of the colonies from the British Empire and that. And she said she fought for a quarter of a century before they decided finally to give a family allowance to women. But what she really wanted was a wage, and she said women have earned this and were not getting the money that they had earned, and therefore there was a lot of children's poverty. And everybody knew, at least they didn't say so, but everybody knew, because in the discussion in Parliament about whether women should get the family allowance or men, all the women said, if you give it to women the children will get it. If you give it to men, that is not inevitable. So we, you know, we found out about the family allowance campaign, which had got us the money, and about the woman who had fought for us and died just before the first payment in 1946. And we immediately were thrust into being useful to women who wanted compensation for the fact that they were raped, who were fighting deportation because they were from Africa or the West Indies or India. And we formed a women's center. We had a squat at first, and then we got them to legalize it. And we've had a women's center ever since. The Crossroads Women's Center is here loud and proud and ready to welcome Marion Kramer whenever she comes across the sea. Um, uh, We've always understood that we are divided in many ways, and including, and first of all, on the question of race in the U.S., in the U.K., in other countries, but also on religious grounds in India, for example, it is the Hindus who are in charge and they try to encourage Hindu people to be against the Muslims and against the Sikhs. And in the strike that was um, announced in your um, report of events, the news events, that strike is based on the fact that the Muslims and the Sikhs and the Hindus are fighting alongside each other and refusing to be divided in this way. And our campaign was based 
on breaking the divisions among us. First of all, acknowledging them. They were there, and we had to deal with them. We couldn't say, well, we're all equal, so we don't have to pay attention. It's not like that. And we are a working-class movement of grassroots women, and therefore we are international and must be. Mm-hmm. And Marion Kramer and your sisters, Marion, who struggled with you to establish women's right to an income for the work that we're all doing, have really, they're one of, they're some of the people who made us, who educated us, and who showed us the way, and we're very grateful for that. Right. Um, Okay. On that note, um, stay with us. We're going to continue with this fascinating discussion with two grassroots women's rights leaders, Marion Kramer, who is the uh, chair of the National Welfare Rights Union, and Selma James, who is a founder of the Wages for Housework campaign and international coordinator of the Global Women's Strike. Stay with us. We'll be right back. And also coming up, our weekly Earth Minute. Okay, and that's Money, Money, Money by ABBA. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner True. Check out our website at www.sotrueradio.org, our handle on Instagram and Twitter at SoTrueRadio. We're also heard nationwide and uh, internationally on SoundCloud. And today, in honor of both of our guests, we're going to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Detroit, Michigan, in the great state of Michigan, and internationally for our listeners, not only in London, England, but throughout uh, the UK. Uh, before we return to Marion Kramer and Selma James, we are our weekly Earth Minute returns. The environmental and social devastation caused by flooding millions of acres of wild ecosystems and forests for hydroelectric dams belies the idea that these dams are green or climate friendly. Dam reservoirs release vast amounts of methane, exacerbating climate change, and poison people and wildlife with methylmercury. In many instances, indigenous communities are forcibly removed for the dams, their food sources poisoned, and their way of life lost forever. Hydropower drives racist human rights abuses and must be rejected. In Honduras, Goldman Prize winner and anti-dams activist Berta Cáceres was murdered for her activism. In Chile, Mapuche Lanco and Goldman Prize winner Alberto Coramil was jailed for 18 months awaiting trial on bogus charges for stopping two hydro projects on Mapuche land. In Canada, Hydro-Quebec has been damming wild rivers on indigenous lands for decades to supply electricity to aluminum smelters and for export to the U.S. Hydropower is neither sustainable nor renewable. The Northeast Mega Dam Resistance Alliance is taking action. Learn more and sign their petition at northeastmegadamresistance.org. For the Earth Minute and the Sojourner Truth Show, this is Ann Peterman from Global Justice Ecology Project. 
All righty. And Margaret Prescott here, host of Sojourner Truth and our guest for our our Women's Month, International Women's Day special, uh, Marion Kramer, who is the president of the National Welfare Rights Union in the United States, and Selma James, who's based in London, England. Selma is the founder of the Wages for Housework campaign and international coordinator the global women's strike. So uh, Marion Kramer, uh, back to you earlier in the show, you gave us um, some of the early history of the National Welfare Rights Organization. And it would be good if you could share with our listeners now um, what, um, you know, there was an article in uh, one of today's papers, I think the Washington Post or one of them, of a guy making the case that um, Clinton's welfare reform actually helped to reduce poverty. I wonder if you want to comment on that. And also, it would really be uh, useful to our listeners to hear a a bit about the struggle in Detroit that you all have been involved in around water and the relationship with uh, water cutoffs and women having their children taken by child welfare. Uh, Marion Kramer, let's begin with your comment on did welfare reform um, reduce poverty? Marion Kramer. Okay, I'm I'm not quite sure. I'm not hearing Marion. Um, if she is on mute or her line has dropped, I'll ask the assistant producer to just check with that. Marion, can you hear me? Okay. Uh, let's try to get Marion uh, back on the line. But Selma James, while we're uh, waiting uh, to get Marion uh, back on the line, um, just uh, tell us, you know, we just had our weekly Earth Minute, and we know that the global women's strike that you helped to coordinate have joined forces with the Green New Deal uh, for Europe on the Care Income Now campaign. Uh, tell us about, about that, because it's a bit different from where you started out with the demand for wages for housework, with a demand now that's calling for a care income for all who care for people, as well as those who care for the environment. Selma. Well, we knew that in most of the world, women are farmers, um, usually growing the food uh, that their families consume. And we knew that that was unwaged work that had to be counted. And Margaret, you were one of the people who went to the UN led the delegation, in fact, at the U.N., demanding that um, the work of women, which was unwaged on, um, at home, on the land, and in the community, had to be counted in national statistics. And we wanted that work to be registered so that ultimately we would demand a wage for that work since, uh, at that time, 80% of the food consumed in Africa, for example, was grown by women. So, but when we saw the Green New Deal, which was saying that you could, that they would call for an income for those who care for people and the planet, we looked at each other and we said, yes, this puts both struggles that seem to be different struggles into one movement, which is that we want the carers the carers of people, the carers of natural, the natural world, the carers of the, um, of the climate, the carers of the waters, the carers for all of us which, uh, on which our lives are based, 
that that is one movement, one movement of carers. And that means that the, the, we don't work for the market. We demand that the market work for us. That is, that we, human beings and natural creatures and the climate, they, or all of us, are what the world is about, what the economy is about, what the society must be built on, raising the children and feeding the hungry and giving each of us a life that is based on the natural world and not plundering it, but cherishing it, caring for it, so that we we encompass the Wages for Housework campaign and put it together with the movement that had always been acknowledged by us, which was the work of women in particular and men on the land. And I remember that one of the women in Thailand said, we give as much care to the soil as we do for the people in our families. We care. We are carers. And we want that acknowledged not only because it is work, but because it is what we want to see happen. And we don't want it to be the, case, the occasion of the exploitation of women, but we wanted it to be the focus of the society, the focus of the economy. And the relationships among us must be relationships of care. That is what I call civilization. So that right. is, it encompasses what we did before, but in a broader context and a whole context, a holistic context, Right. And thank you, Selma James and Marion Kramer. Uh, we were trying to get back to you after our station break, but we're glad you're now back on the line. And what I had asked you to comment on is there's an article circulating in the mainstream press today um, of a guy who's making the claim that Clinton's welfare reform actually reduced poverty. And I wondered your comment on that. But secondly, um, you heard Selma talk about uh, care of the land. And, and we yeah. also had our, our weekly Earth Minute uh, today. And you all have been involved in a struggle around water uh, in Detroit. And I wondered if you wanted to talk about that. Uh, so both of those things now, Marion Kramer. Okay. Um, I enjoyed that. And, and I'm enjoying this phone call. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's time, you know, I, when I saw Margaret again uh I don't know where we were. I think we were somewhere in, in D.C. or somewhere. I was yep. so happy to see her. And uh, she said, uh, uh, and ended up a few months later, uh, we, we said, oh, look, Margaret, we do redoing the National Welfare Rights Union. I want to get this. You asked me about this earlier. Uh, the mm -hmm. National Welfare Rights Union came together under the Clinton administration. Uh, and that's when we were fighting uh, uh, against slave labor, you know, which you had to work your, they had passed uh, the program that in order for you to get welfare, you're going to have to go to work. Mm. Uh, 
And, and, and it would have been different if they, you had to go to work and, and end up with a, a juicy type of uh, income and what have you. But, no, this is the avenue that they were using to split poor people against one another and at the same time make their profits at the time. Clinton was a disgrace to, uh, to society. Uh, we, we wrote, I wrote a letter to his wife asking her, uh, you claim that you, uh, uh, work for the benefit of our children and what have you. Well, uh, look here. Today, you don't work for us. You never did. Because if you did, that's why, uh, erasers are put on pencils to be able to get rid of stuff that, that, uh, that is attacking our ability to live. She wrote back and she said, I love my husband. And I'm going to stand by him. I say, well, you can go down, too, with him. But the thing about it is, if we could just bring together, like what Margaret has been trying to do uh, uh, for a long time, and I know you women have, is how can we bring together um, the various organizations and show the folks who's the pillar of society, be we in uh uh, you know, in Europe or either in, in the United States. But we have to let these women understand, be it the caregivers or whoever, be they in unions or whatever, that we are the pillars of, of this country, of the United States and any other country, because we are the ones that usually have to get the men out of trouble, not only get them out of trouble, but we are the people that are that keep the families going and that type of stuff. It is time for all of us to come together and begin to take our rightful place and, and, and let them know that we are tired of living like we have been living, and that is still being, uh, you know, keeping us in a slave mentality and stuff like that. That is up to us. We change the welfare rights. Um, name years ago after we re after we uh, called for the national welfare rights to be uh, uh, you know uh, our organization because I tell you the federal government was on top of us and we were not the ones that was dealing with the money uh, that what we changed it to what we said it was time to build a union for welfare rights because it's obvious that the unions at that time did not uh, give us respect. And so we, we built that union, and we call it the, the National Welfare Rights Union, to carry on the fight of Johnny, to carry on the fight of all the women that helped build it in the first place. So we're at another level now. All of us are leaders. Uh, and and we need to come together and let this world tell them, no. If you're going to write a, um, a program for women and their children, why the poor women are not there to help write that program? Because you don't know what it means. And you have been in the forefront. Women have been in This is our year now. And I'm feeling it more and more as we build this thing around um caregiver this is our time to step forward and show them who are the real leaders out here 
That's right. So, you know, and, and I hope from this from this uh, opportunity to be on with y'all today that we could we can can began to get these women together, be they black, white, green, or yellow, and and began to build the organization that we've been uh, uh, waiting on. And that's that organization that all of us become a part of. We could close this country down. Our women don't even realize that. But yet and still you got you got these Terrible people in D.C. talking about uh, getting rid of uh, the programs that we need. And, That's you know, right. and, and uh, one of the people that were in the forefront of a lot of that was Clinton and his wife, too. Yeah, Mostly you know, Marion Kramer, what I'm going to have to do is likely to have you back, have both of y'all back, because we have just scratched the surface. And I'm just looking at the clock and I'm, I'm getting notices saying, Margaret, we're, we're out of time. We got to get ready for the for the eight o'clock hour. So Marion and Selma, um, let me put you on the spot now and ask you, w- w- would you be willing to come back on the show and continue this discussion? You know, I will do what you want me to do. All righty. Well, thank you and so I'm very much. And I thank you on the program. Absolutely. And just to say that the National Welfare Rights Union organizing a series of truth commissions under the banner Poverty in All Its Forms is Violence. Caregivers victimized by poverty speak out. That's going to be Thursday, March 18th. And that is going to be seven o'clock Eastern time, four o'clock Pacific time. Go on to the website of the National Welfare Rights Union. Also, we want to post it on the Global Women's Strike website so that you could register and participate and hear women impacted by poverty speaking in their own name. But we're going to have to dash. We're out of time. Marion Kramer, Selma James, thank thank both of you for joining us. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for putting us together. All righty. Yeah. Today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank the Sojourner Truth team, Kiana Williams, our um, engineer today, assistant producer Romero Funes. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air tomorrow. If you'd like a copy of today's show, contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to PacificaRadioArchives.org. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Y'all, please stay safe. I love paying rent when the rent's too. I hope you got the diamond necklace that I sent to you. Cause when I was slow, you was there for me. You never left.